God hasn't promised us wealth in old age, but He has promised that He will always supply our daily bread and meet our basic needs. Read Matthew 6. Read those wonderful words of our Lord who says, Don't worry. Don't worry. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Why are genealogies in the Bible so significant? To whom were they written? And for what reasons? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part 20 of Ruth. Think about all the seemingly insignificant events in the book of Ruth. Insignificant at first, but throughout our 20-part study, you've discovered that God was completely in control and establishing His eternal purpose. He was doing something, something of vital importance that was at the very heart of His eternal plan of redemption. And today, you'll discover that more than a thousand years before Jesus of Nazareth would be born, God was framing His family tree. Do you see yet what the story of Ruth is really about? Let's join our teacher now for more on The Word Unleashed. The text has the idea of holding this child to her chest. It's an expression that's used in the Old Testament of both a a wife holding her husband to her chest and holding her child to her chest. Don't miss the drama, the human drama of this moment. Both Naomi's husband and her sons had died. She had no one to hold to her chest. As far as she knew, that was the story of the rest of her life. But in God's goodness to her, we watch her as she pulls this little child to her chest. Leon Morris writes, For Naomi, this child was special. She had expected a lonely old age when her husband and sons died. With none of those near to her left Her future had indeed looked bleak. Everything was now different. She belonged to a family once more. She was loved and she had a recognized place. The baby, in a sense, symbolized it all. Verse 16 goes on to say, And she became his nurse. Now some have misunderstood this expression to mean that Naomi legally adopted the child, or in some cases they would even say became his wet nurse. There's absolutely... None of that implied in the Hebrew. It's more like her becoming his nanny. Not in the formal sense of the parents not caring for the child. Instead, this is simply the joy of a grandmother who gets to be deeply involved in the life of her first grandchild. Verse 17 says, The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Now, if these women actually named this child, it would be the only instance in the Old Testament of that happening. More likely, they were either suggesting a name that eventually Boaz and Ruth agreed to, or they were affirming the significance of the name that the parents had already given to this child. They named the boy Obed. The name means, in Hebrew, the one who serves. In light of the context, it's very likely that they mean this child 
will serve Naomi. In her old age, he will serve her and be her sustainer. There are lessons all over this little book. Let me just point out a couple as we're moving our way through here. One, there is a reminder here that Yahweh provides for His own even in old age. Don't misunderstand. It's right for us to plan for the future. We are commanded to be like the ant that works in summer because winter is coming. That's wisdom. But ultimately, our provision in old age doesn't depend on our bank account or, thank God, on Social Security. Our God has promised to provide for His children. Often, God provides for us as we age through the work of our hands. He gives us strength to continue to work, to provide. Other times, through the financial resources that He has allowed us to accumulate, either through business success or through inheritance. Often, God provides for us in our old age through our children or our grandchildren or other family. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, children and grandchildren are commanded to help care for their parents and grandparents. And on rare occasions, God uses the church to come alongside and help those who have neither family nor resources. Again, 1 Timothy 5. God hasn't promised us wealth in old age, but He has promised that He will always supply our daily bread and meet our basic needs. Read Matthew 6. Read those wonderful words of our Lord who says, Don't worry. Don't worry. So work hard. Save wisely for the future. The wise man doesn't spend everything he gets. So save, work hard, prepare, but don't worry. God provides for His people. There's another lesson here, and that is, and I love this, God often restores life and joy after He's brought devastation and difficulty because of sin. Sometimes, God allows some of the consequences of our sin to continue in our lives. We see that, obviously, in the life of a man like David. But when we repent, God always forgives, and He often restores and renews as well. To use the words of the prophet Joel, God can restore the years that the locust has eaten. Or as Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.3, He can give a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. You know, in many ways, this book of Ruth is a call to repent. If, like Naomi, you have left God's ways, if you have chosen the way of the transgressor and found that it's hard, then return. If you feel the weight of God's chastening hand in your life, like Elimelech and Naomi did, turn back to God. He always welcomes the prodigal. Our God forgives sins. Exodus 34, 7, He says of Himself, I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. Psalm 32, 6 David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, my acts of rebellion to Yahweh, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 86.5, which is one of my favorites. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 130, verse 5, there is forgiveness with you. 
that you may be feared. Repent. Turn back. Turn back. Go home. He will have compassion. He will pardon. He will forgive. He will give joy for mourning. He will restore the joy of your salvation. And He often restores the years that the locust has eaten. God provided a Redeemer for Naomi. Thirdly, God provided a Redeemer for Israel. Look at verse 17. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. The child of Boaz and Ruth was no ordinary child. He was the direct ancestor of David. In fact, he would become David's grandfather. You see, God here was at the same time providing a redeemer for the nation of Israel. Don't forget the historical context of Ruth. This story unfolds near the end of that disastrous period of the judges, the darkest in Israel's history. For more than 300 years, think about that, 300 years, back to, in our context, to 17, the year 1700. For 300 years, the people of God were locked in devastating cycle after endless cycle of disobedience, followed by divine chastening, followed by repentance and deliverance. And what was the chief political characteristic of those dark days? Listen to Judges 17.6. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And oh, by the way, it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. But God would not. God could not abandon His people. Remember, He abounds in hesed, that Hebrew word that means loving loyalty. God once he enters into a relationship, never lets go. So he was acting, even in the story, to raise up a human king for his people. By bringing Ruth and Boaz together in his providence, God was raising up a redeemer, not just for them, but for the nation. A temporal political redeemer for their time, a king who would be a man after his own heart, a king who would be Israel's greatest, David. Next to Moses, David is the most important character in the Old Testament. His story occupies the writers of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and much of 1st and 2nd Kings. He wrote alone more than half of the Psalms He was at the epicenter of the promises about the coming Messiah. The writer of Ruth already knows David. He knows what's happened. And he's looking back and reflecting on how God, through His amazing providence, worked in the darkest days of Israel's history to bring David to power to rescue his people. But this chapter doesn't end with God's provision of a Redeemer for Ruth for Naomi, or even for Israel, through His amazing providence in these three seemingly insignificant lives, Yahweh was also providing the Redeemer for mankind. Verses 18 to 22. Ruth ends in a very surprising way with a genealogy. 
Now, there are not many things, honestly, that we can say about the individuals mentioned here because little is revealed about these individuals in Scripture. They appear in a couple of genealogies. But there, it is important to note that this genealogy is intentionally selective. In other words, it's incomplete. There are gaps in time and in generations, intentionally. It lists ten generations, but the time frame is from the time of Judah and his son about 1,800 years before Christ, to the time of David, who reigned to 971, almost 900 years. The writer seems to be primarily concerned with symmetry, with the symmetry of ten generations. Five names belong to the 430 years of the sojourn in Egypt to the Exodus, And five names belong to the 476 years between the exodus from Egypt and the death of David. So there's there's balance, there's symmetry. Let's look at it briefly. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez was Judah's son, one of the 12 tribes. And to him, verse 18 says, was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram, to Ram Abinadab. Finally, we meet somebody that we know a little bit about. Abinadab was also the father of Aaron's wife, according to Exodus 6, 23. It goes on to say, and to Abinadab was born Nishan. Nishan, we know, was the brother-in-law of Aaron, and he was a leader during the time of the wilderness wanderings. That's all we know. Verse 20 goes on to say, and to Nishan, Salmon. Salmon was the husband of Rahab the harlot. And to Salmon was born Boaz. By the way, there's a huge gap there, several generations. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. From Boaz to David, that appears to be exactly as it was. There's, there are no gaps there. But in the previous names, there are. So why in this book, with a genealogy, with a list of guys we know almost nothing about? I like what Morris writes. Throughout the book, in all its artless simplicity, there runs the note that God is supreme. He watches over people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and directs their paths. God works out His purpose generation after generation. I love this. Limited as we are to one lifetime, each of us sees so little of what happens. A genealogy is a striking way of bringing before us the continuity of God's purpose through the ages. The process of history is not haphazard. There is a purpose in it all, and the purpose is the purpose of God. That's why I end with a genealogy. God is at work in every generation to accomplish His purpose. But there's another curiosity here. Why why go back and connect David, the last name in the list, to Perez, the first name in the list? There's only one thing significant about this guy. Only one thing. And that was whose son he was. He was Judah's son. Why is that significant? Well, because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God had promised that a Redeemer would come. That's all He told us. He would be an unusual child, the seed of the woman. 
and he would crush the head of the serpent. We come to Genesis 12, and we learn that that promised Redeemer would come through one man, Abraham, and the nation that would come from his loins. Then we learn that descendant, that Redeemer, will come through Isaac, Jacob, and then turn to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, verse 8. Here is Jacob's dying blessing on his sons. And he says to Judah, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. In other words, you're going to be a ruler. Judah is a lion's whelp. And then notice what he says in verse 10. This is a prophecy about a future ruler that will come through Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. He's going to be the kingly tribe, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, watch this, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh may be a name as it's translated here, but it means the one to whom it belongs. Judah is going to continue to rule until the one comes to whom rule truly belongs. And notice this person. He's not going to just rule over the nation. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This was a prophecy about the Messiah. And it prophesied that he would be a descendant of, guess who? Judah. And then through Perez. That's why the connection. Ruth traces Obed back to Perez because he was a son of Judah. And it was through the line of Judah that Israel's kings would come, but it was also through their line that Messiah would come. You see, Yahweh has provided a Redeemer for us all. But the story of our Redeemer didn't begin in Matthew 1. It really began with a Trinitarian agreement in eternity past when God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit agreed to redeem man and the Son volunteered. But it began in time in Genesis 3.15. But don't miss this. One of the key chapters in the great drama of our Redeemer is a most unlikely chapter. It's the little book of Ruth. On the surface, it's an extraordinary story of redemption at a human level. But it is so much more. In Naomi, we see a story of divine chastening and restoration. In Boaz, we see a story of divine blessing in one who is faithful to his God. In Ruth, and I love this, we see a story of sovereign grace. God, through the sin of one of his people, reaches into Moab and snatches an idolatrous woman to himself. And she becomes a worshiper of the one true God. God has done the same for many of us. He snatched us out of a hopeless condition. But Ruth also teaches us profound lessons about God's sovereignty and His providence. Remember, sovereignty is what God is. He rules over all things. Providence is what he does. It's when he uses his sovereignty, when he exerts sovereignty to cause the details of human life to accomplish his eternal purpose. It's what theologians call the eternal decree. 
This is how it appears in the confessions. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And yet, He does it so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, God is so wise, He can work through our decisions, through what happens in the world, to accomplish in the end His perfect plan, what He decided to do in eternity past. In His sovereign providence, God was at work in these three lives more than a thousand years before Christ to accomplish His saving purposes. I mean, think about all the seemingly insignificant events in Ruth in which God was completely in control and establishing His eternal purpose. Listen, this is no less true in your life and mine. But in the case of their lives, God was doing something that was at the very heart of His plan of the ages, His eternal plan of redemption. More than a thousand years before Jesus of Nazareth would be born, God was framing His family tree. I want you to fast forward to the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 2. See if you recognize anything as we work along here. Matthew 1 verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nishan. And Nishan, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the, was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. Do you see it? I said there's almost nothing known about these men. Their names just appear a couple of times in genealogies. One of them is at the end of Ruth. The other is in Matthew 1. And don't forget the context. Go back to verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see what the story of Ruth is really about? I love the way Daniel Block puts it. He says, as the genealogy of Matthew 1 indicates, one greater than David comes from the loins of Boaz. In the dark days of the judges, the foundation was laid for the line that would produce the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer of a lost and destitute humanity. Through the love story of Boaz and Ruth, God was providing us with a kinsman Redeemer. 3,100 years ago in Bethlehem, God wove three lives together so that you could sit here tonight and be in Christ. What an amazing God we serve. There is a Redeemer. Because 3,100 years ago, Ruth was snatched from idolatry and she, her chance, chanced upon the field of Boaz. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled Ruth. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? As we've learned, Ruth is really a story of redemption. It's the redemption of Naomi from the path of disobedience. It's the redemption of Ruth from false religion to become a follower of the true God. And ultimately, all redemption is made possible, as Ruth teaches us at the end, through the coming Redeemer, the descendant of Ruth, our Lord Jesus Christ, who would purchase the forgiveness of our sins and through his righteousness enable us to be right with God. My plea with you today is put your trust in the God of Ruth and in the one who would come as her descendant to make us right with God through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.